Jesus says. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Week two, we talked about the idea of ownership and, and stewardship, that God owns everything in the world. And everything that we have is a gift from him. We're just stewards of the money and the blessings and the talent and the time that he's given to us. So we should be wise with what he's given us. Last week we talked about contentment. And I'll talk a little bit more about that today. But today I want to talk about uh, some more specifics on what it means to be a giving and generous people. I'm going to talk a little bit about tithing this morning and what that might look like uh, for us as a church. Uh, This Old Testament concept that I think has some uh, parallels for some New Testament teaching this morning. Uh, This morning, let's begin with a prayer. But before we do that, I want to announce a difficult thing to say this morning. Last week, uh, we mentioned that Taylor Sessions, three-year-old girl, we were praying for her. She was on life support. Many of you may have heard, but Taylor passed away this week. Difficult, difficult time for the family. I want you to know that the Connecting Point group around them stepped up in a major way. They had family from Atlanta that flew in, uh, dozens of people. And that that, uh, ceremony was was filled on Friday when we celebrated her life. But be in prayer for that family. That is, this is a hard time for them in a major way. And they are new to this area. So this church family really needs to surround them not only in prayer, but with our uh, gifts, our, our meals, everything we can do to support that family during this time. Let's pray together, especially for the Sessions family. Father, our hearts break this morning on behalf of Tripp and Bree and Sydney who are trying to figure out what life looks like without a a beloved family member, a gift that you gave to them. God, we don't understand why things happen in this world the way they do. And right now, God, all we can do is really cry out to you, and, and, and part of us wants to cry out in anger and ask why, God. But more than anything, God, we want your peace and your comfort to be on the Sessions family. As they travel to Atlanta in the week to come and and, and go through this memorial again with their family there, God, would you be close to them, closer than they've ever felt before your presence. And help us as a church family to reach out to the Sessions family during this time. God, we, uh, we don't understand suffering. We don't understand why bad things happen to people sometimes. But we trust that just as you were uh, with your son on the cross, God, and present there, even in the absence that he felt, that you were present even in our suffering as we live on this earth as well. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, this morning, like I said, I want to talk more about the topic of tithing. What is it? Why did God command it? And is it something that we should still live out in some way today? Many of us have different understandings about the language of tithing based on the churches we grew up in or the families, our families of origin. Uh, I remember in my family, it was pretty clear the way giving would work. When I was probably about five, seven years old, I don't know where I was in there, I started getting an allowance. And kids, I don't know what you get today, I got a dollar allowance. And I wasn't given a dollar bill, that was given to me in dimes. Because, well, you had to divvy up how those dimes would work. And so I had a, a, a wagon uh, bank that was like from Wells Fargo or something, and I would put a dime in there for savings. And then I had a dime that I would take on Sunday morning to church to give a tenth of what I had been given that week. And then a tenth, another dime would go in a box that was just for helping people. It was a helping people fund. My parents trying to instill in me this idea that uh, the government will take 30% of you from you at some point, right? <laughs> but I appreciate their teaching and their modeling because today 
this is a commitment we continue to keep as a family because I was taught from an early age. And if there's nothing else we learned this morning, maybe it is that for the next generation, it's important that we teach them from an early start what generosity looks like so that they don't have to learn it the hard way later on in life. It's important for us to have some understanding about the background of tithing and where this all comes from. It comes from the story of Israel beginning in Egypt. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That Egypt, or Israel lives, leaves Egypt and they enter into the promised land later on. They go through a wilderness wandering. But you can imagine what 400 years of slavery did to this group of people. Because for years they'd been scrounging around trying to have enough for the day. They'd been meeting quota after quota. Rest was something that they weren't used to. So what does it look like for them to enter into the promised land and to now uh, live and lead in a new way that's different than how they were led in Egypt? So they know a worldview of scarcity. And one of the things that God says to them early on is, I want you to be a generous people. I'm a generous God. I've saved you. And I want you to be a generous people. I want you to live after my example in your life. And so he commands the people of God when they enter the promised land to to generosity in these ways. I want to pick up in in, in Scripture in Leviticus, actually. Probably the most well-worn part of your Bible, right? Leviticus chapter 27. I want to read a few verses that give some background on this idea of tithing. Leviticus 27, beginning in verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Now, most of us know that on Mount Sinai, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, right? But there's a lot more conversation that goes on. There's a lot of laws that follow Exodus chapter 20. And here in Leviticus, God is saying, hey, a big part of this is when you go to the land, you're you're to give back to God what he's given to you. It actually belongs to the Lord is the language that Scripture provides. So why was this command so important? I want to talk more about that a couple books forward in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses gives a little more background to this idea. Deuteronomy chapter 26. It's a little bit of a longer reading, so stick with me. But beginning in verse 1, this is what Moses says from from God. When you've entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today that the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands, set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring to you the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. 
Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all of your produce, in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widows, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I've obeyed the Lord my God. I've done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling, and bless your people Israel, the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there's some some key teachings I want to draw out from this passage. First of all, in verse 2, what is the first thing that they're to do when they enter the promised land? Just take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil. Give that back to the Lord. It belongs to Him. So that's the first thing they're to do. God's given them this land. They're supposed to take the first fruits of that soil and give it back to God. Why? Well, verse 9 tells us. Because God brought them out of Egypt and into a wonderful new land. I have to wonder if there were some of them that may have taken the shirts off their back in this moment and reminded them of the scars that had been put on their backs in slavery. To remind them that God had done a mighty thing on their behalf and it was their job to do the same for others that might be in their place. Verse 10 goes on. We give back to God from what he's given to us. God is the the initial giver. God is always the one who initially gives to us. We only return what he's given first to us. And that's an understanding, a philosophy, a theology of tithing that Scripture gives to us. Now tithing is just an ancient word for 10%. That's really all that it means. And basically that's what God has asked Israel to do. To give back the first fruits. It's not just 10%, it's the first 10% that's taught. You give that back to God. And then after that, as it follows along, we see that actually there was a lot more that they were to give. They're supposed to give 10% of their income a year also to throw parties, throw festivals that are, are given to the God each year. And then every third year, like Deuteronomy 26 says, you're to give a tithe to the, the fatherless and the, and the widow and the Levites that are in your midst. So on average per year, the Israelites are giving 23.3% of their income to God, to the festivals, to uh, the, the foreigners who are in their midst every third year when it comes to that. But what's interesting is the way the Israelites talked about this. They didn't talk about paying a tithe or, or, or giving a tithe. They would talk about repaying a tithe. It was as if they were bringing this to God because it was already His to begin with. And they were just paying back a portion of what God had given to them. So why does God make such a big deal about all this? Well, I think because he wants to shape their mindset from the Egyptian mindset they'd had of scarcity to say, hey, there's enough to go around. And if you can learn to be generous, you can learn to trust me with this, then I'll, we'll build a relationship and we'll have a trusting relationship in so many more ways. But perhaps you need to do it first here to learn in other directions. See, God owns everything in this world. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not looking for a way to pay the lighting bill when you give each week. This is a God who's trying to teach us as much as anything when we give back to Him. But I know what some of you are probably thinking this morning. Tithing? Isn't that an Old Testament concept? I mean, we're under the New Covenant, and so why are we talking this morning about Leviticus and Deuteronomy? 
And I get that perspective. In fact, I know there's been a lot of preachers that have preached legalistic sermons about if you don't do this, then here's the consequences, right? And that's not the sermon I, I'm going to preach today. In fact, I have some good news and bad news this morning. The good news is that, that I, I don't, I'm not going to preach that sermon, that if you don't give 10% to your local church, you're going to hell. That's, that's not the message. But the bad news is, at the end of this sermon, you may have wished I would have preached that sermon. Because in the New Testament, the challenge doesn't go down when it comes to our morality, when it comes to what we're supposed to do. It actually goes up. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament, a letter that Paul wrote to the church and the Christians at Galatia. Galatians chapter 3. When it comes to Old Covenant, New Covenant, this is one of those passages I kind of go back to to see what are we supposed to do when it comes to what the law told us versus in the New Covenant. So uh, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 23. Paul writes, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now growing up, I, I heard that taught as Hey, we're free now, right? No, no more law to worry about now. We just kind of pursue grace and we're grateful for the gift we've been given. And there's some truth to that. But I want to point out some things in this passage that I think are important as we think about what the law is and how Jesus talked about the law. He came to fulfill, not abolish the law. What it's trying to say here is you are adults now. You're adults now. You look at verses 24 and 25, and it mentions a word twice. It mentions the word guardian. In your translation, it may say supervisor or something else to that effect. It comes from a Greek word, paedagogon. Can you say that with me this morning? Paedagogon, okay? Now, if you were a kid in the first century, that term would have come very naturally to you. Because those who were well-to-do families, it was often that those people would would take on and and take care of slaves in their home. In fact, the New Testament talks a lot about slaves and masters, doesn't it? Well, some of those slaves in the first century would have been people who would have been paedagogones. And a paedagogone was basically someone who would care for your kids, right? A nanny of sorts, which sounds like a good deal to some of us. But here's the deal. Like every time your kids would leave the house, the paedagogone would go along with them because you wouldn't want anything to cause harm to your name that your kids would do in public. This is part of what parenting is about, right? Like, make sure they don't make a big enough mistake they can't correct it later on in life. You've done good if you, if you can get through that. Well, the paedagogone was basically had that role. They were a guardian, a supervisor. They would go out in the city with those kids. And so when Paul talks about this, he's drawing on that image to say, you all know what a supervisor is and a, a guardian. You all have a paedagogone in your home. That's what the law was for the people of Israel. When they were kids, when they were growing up out of Egypt, they needed a supervisor, a guardian to teach them the way of life that was better than life in Egypt. But today, you're no longer under the guardian. In other words, you're adults now. Start living like it. It's interesting when you look at the background of of that word and some of this, because some of us are paedagogones today in a sense. Parents are that, aren't we? I mean, Addison's three years old, our daughter, and she doesn't quite get that concept of crossing the street yet on her own, right? We We don't trust her to do that. Maddox is still trying to get this to at five. So we hold her hand and we'll walk her across the street. And over time, we want to teach her that one day you're going to be an adult and mommy and dad aren't going to be here when you cross the street. So you have to learn to look both ways. You have to learn when you can cross. And 
this is dangerous if we don't if we don't have this. And so we play that role of a pedagogo and trying to, to teach, to advise, to be a guardian for our kids in this time of life. Our kids also have a bedtime. And that's a special time. It's a hard time at night. I'm ready to get, you know, get on with other things, but but my kids have got to get down to bed. And that's an important time for us. And it's important to have bedtime in our family because we're trying to train them for one day when we won't be around that, hey, it's good to go to bed at a certain hour. Now, I have a confession to make when it comes to bedtime. I grew up with a bedtime. And when I got to college, man, I stayed up till 2 a.m. every single night. Because the Patagogo had done his and her job, my parents, but I didn't want to follow it once I got out from under it. The interesting thing is Holly didn't grow up with a bedtime growing up. Parents just kind of say, hey, whenever you want to go to bed. And you know what? Today, she goes to bed at 9, 9, 9 p.m. or so usually, and I go to bed about midnight. And I don't know what that is. We're trying to figure out how to parent our kids because here's one without, you know, uh, bedtime, and she gets it better than I do. Because she didn't need to rebel when she got to college, which for a preacher, that's pretty much my rebellion, let me tell you. <laughs> Two o'clock, man, those are crazy dorm nights. This morning, I mean, I still, I stay up till midnight. I, I stay up way too late. Last night I was up late, and you know what happened this morning? First time since I've been here at Greenville Oaks, I slept through my alarm. So I look over, and Holly goes, it wakes me up, and it's 7.15 in the morning. I usually practice starting at 6.30. So you're basically my first service. I got to re- practice on them this morning. And then later on in the service, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I noticed my fly was open all morning. I'm serious. Fortunately, that untucked shirts are here for a reason, right? Yeah. I mean, it's wise to go to bed early because sometimes you don't make these mistakes that you wouldn't make otherwise. See, we need a pie to go on when we're children. But the hope is that one day we'll grow up and we'll no longer need that guardian. One day we'll no longer need that supervisor. It's not that they weren't teaching us important things. They're trying to teach us for a season so we can finally grow up and be more like Holly than me when it comes to bedtime. The Sermon on the Mount talks a lot about this idea. Right in the Ten Commandments, there were certain laws said, and Jesus comes and he says, hey, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But what I tell you is, the Pythagogon only said so much. Why don't you actually stop being angry with one another? Because murder won't be a problem if you take care of that. And then he talks about uh, adultery, another one of those Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even let lust grow in your heart. See, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you guys are adults, and that doesn't mean you throw out the law. What it means is you actually ramp up your expectations. You're an adult now. Act like it. And for some of us, we need that word from time to time, don't we? Because we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we're challenged by it. It's a hard word to live out. But the thing with Jesus is, when when it comes to law, he never lowers the bar. He always raises the bar, doesn't he? He always brings that challenge to a greater level. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to preach some kind of legalistic standard when it comes to giving. I have no problem with people saying, we're no longer under the law. But... When we use the new covenant argument to give far less than what the Old Testament commanded us, I have to wonder if maybe we've missed something along the way about what the Pythagogon, the law, was trying to teach us along the way. I told you you might not like this sermon because I think the New Testament is actually more challenging when it comes to this. We've made this mistake with Sabbath in our lives. The Pythagogon, the law, told us, you know, Sabbath is something you should keep. You should only work for so long and take a day of rest. In fact, the rabbis figured out what it meant to do work and tried to make sure that no one went anywhere near breaking that commandment. And what do we do today? 
We're no longer under the law, so the Sabbath's not important to most of us. But is there a, a more important commandment that we could learn to, to, to live out in our own age than the, than the Sabbath? This is a commitment that Holly and our family have made. Fridays is our day of Sabbath. And I'm, if, if I don't answer your phone, on, on phone call on Saturday, part of the reason is we're, we're trying to commit to Sabbath. And that doesn't mean that if I get a voicemail and there's an emergency or, or some big things that happen, I won't be reachable. But we're trying to set boundaries in our life to realize that if we don't rest, you, you realize this, if you rest, the world goes on without you. That's what I'm learning by Sabbath. Is that I don't control outcomes. The world was fine before I got here. It'll be fine long after I leave. And Sabbath is a weekly reminder in my own life that God's got things under control. And that I can turn off my phone and, 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 and the world will go on just fine. And what I found with people is when they hear that kind of boundary setting, they're not upset by it. They're thinking, and we need to do the same thing in our life. And I do better some weekends than I do others. But what I'm learning is the law actually had some good things to share. And when we throw it away, we're doing it to our own peril. I mean, I wonder how many of us, if, if the government were to come out tomorrow and say, you know, you no longer have to wear seatbelts anymore. I mean, how wise would it be for us to say, well, there's no law, so we might as well just not wear seatbelts anymore. I mean, some of you still have scars from growing up without seatbelts and, you know, brake hit too fast or something like that. Or, or maybe you lost a loved one before the law was put in place. Or I can't imagine just putting my kid in a, you know, in a seat without a safety restraint. If the law wasn't there, I'd keep doing it. Because there are things about the law that are actually helpful to our lives, not things we throw out when we live under grace. I wonder what it looks like to live this out more in our lives in this way. See, the strongest arguments made against tithing day are law versus grace arguments. But does being under grace mean we should stop doing all that was done under the law? I mean, did you, did you know that the average Christian gives 2.5% of their income? And my question is, why has 23% become 2.5% under grace? Seems like it should go the opposite direction, shouldn't it? Tithing is not the finish line of giving, giving either. It's the training wheels. That's what a pie-to-go-going does. It says, hey, here's, here's the training wheels. One day you're going to get to ride without these training wheels. And, of course, tithing can be a legalistic thing. But so can communion, can it? But I don't hear anyone trying to get rid of weekly communion around here. Or, or church attendance. That's an important thing, right? And it can become legalistic in some ways. And some of us have gone far past that. But, but isn't this a good thing to keep up, a good thing for us to come together and to encourage one another and to, to be here to hear a word from God? See, just because a practice can slip into legalism doesn't mean it's wise to completely reject it. And I know many of us in our tribe, we grew up with negative tapes running in our minds all the time about who God is. Right? I mean, God's this angry God, and we can never quite live up to him. But if we do a little bit better or a little bit more, then maybe he'll be happy with us. I'm not here to say that if you give more on a Sunday morning, God's going to be more happy with you. That's actually not true. God will never love you any more or less than he does right this instant. And I know some of us grew up thinking, man, if I can just get this right, then finally I'll be right with God. The truth is, yeah, we need to be made right with God. We need to try to root sin out of our life. There's no doubt about that. But there's nothing that we can do to change the level of God's love that he has for us right at this instant. And if you can live out of that center, all of a sudden, everything's a gift that's given to you. And all of a sudden, we are able to give gifts in a new way as well. I know the arguments, though. I've made the arguments, right? I've said it at times in my life. Like, I, this tithing, that's an Old Testament thing. But let me ask you this question. 
Do you really think God would ask something of the poorest Israelite that he wouldn't ask of us in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world? If you have your Bibles, I'll turn over a few more books to 1 Timothy. I read from this chapter actually last week, but I want to continue on what Paul says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Again, Paul is writing uh, to Timothy, a co-worker in, in the work of the Lord, who's an apostle in one of the wealthiest cities, Ephesus, in that time. Think about it. This is a book written to a young minister about a wealthy city and a church in it. Okay, so I'm paying attention. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, according to Paul, Generosity is not a suggestion, it's a command. It's a command. God's not your financial advisor. He's your financial commander. And if we get things out of order when it comes to this area of our lives, all kinds of disorder and chaos begins to result. Listen, I'm I'm just a messenger this morning, and this is not my favorite sermon to preach. But I know one day God's going to come to me and he's going to say, you know what, Colin, what did you teach those people about their finances in that wealthy city of Allen, Texas? And I'll be able to say, look, I commanded them to be wealthy or to, to be generous with all that they have in their wealth. It's okay to be wealthy, actually, as long as you understand what you're to do with that wealth, how you're to bless with that wealth. But I'm going to be able to say to him that. And I know sometimes we hear a message like this and we begin to kind of tense up or we begin to look around like, what are they thinking? Like, he's only six months in and he's kind of teaching on money. Maybe he should have waited a little longer. Or I know some of us may be a little angry right now. Who's, who, what right does he have? And, and we, I know we have a private culture when it comes to money, that we don't talk about what we make. It's kind of a private matter in our lives. But I think we've got to begin to challenge one another more and more when it comes to all this. And Because when, when the, the gods in your life get challenged, that's when anger begins to rise up. Because they don't want you to hear this. They want you to have an evil eye, a stingy eye toward things and say, this is, this is not of God. This is not what I should be hearing. And I know what happens in moments like this. Like you're tempted sometimes when you hear a message like this to, to point out an inconsistency about a church staff member or, or about an elder. Or maybe you're, you're pointing, I know with me when I was giving before I was on staff, it was like whatever I didn't want money given to, they, they spent money on. Like I figured whatever I gave went directly to that, Right? And we, we make these kind of calculations in our minds about how that's not the best way to give. The truth is, this is a gift to God no matter where you give it. This isn't just about your generosity to church. It's about your generosity in all kinds of ways. And that's, if all you heard this morning was give more to the local church, it's not the point. God wants something more for you through a generous life. And, and Holly and I are searching through this, through this series. We're asking that question. We're committed right now to tithing to this local church. That's, that's our commitment. That's our decision. But we're asking, what does that look like to do that more and more in the days to come, to be more generous with the things that we have? Stanley Hauerwas is a scholar that, that once challenged church leaders in a, in a talk with several leaders to, to ask new people coming to their church four questions before they allowed them to be a part of that church. I thought it was an interesting list. And he said, you won't do this because I know you're scared to. He said, number one, uh, I, I want, who is the Lord and Savior of your life? And the answer better be Jesus. 
Number two, are you willing to follow him and learn from him as, as a disciple? Are you, are you growing in your life with God? Number three, are you willing to participate in the life and mission of this church? Not just are you committed to the life and journey out there, but this church, are you committed to our mission as well? And then number four, what is your annual income? Turn to the person next to you and say, ask them the question, what is your annual income? No, don't do that, okay? Well, we know how uncomfortable that is, but what he's getting at is there are certain private matters of our lives that we need to be challenged in. Now, this morning, I don't want to issue a challenge in some specific way about a building campaign that's coming up. That's not what the purpose of this series is. We're not behind on our budget when it comes to the grand scheme of things. You all are a generous people. I wanted to teach on this because I wanted this to become a regular part of my teaching, not just when things got into trouble, we came to you saying, we need more money. That's not what this is about. So I want to ask every family unit in this church, whether you're a single, whether you're, you're married, or you have kids, I want, you to, 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 I want to challenge you to have a conversation this week with those in your family. I think it'd be great to have kids involved in this discussion. And I want you to think about what does it look like for us to be generous in 2015? Maybe you've already made those decisions. That's great. But I want to challenge you to think again about what it might be to take the next step in your journey. I want, you, I want to challenge you to discuss two things as a family this week. The first is this. What should our salary be? Now, I know part of you is going, I don't get to go to my boss and say, here's my salary, right? But I kind of talked about this last week a little bit. God gives us a, a sum of money that we're able to draw from and use, and a lot of us think that's our salary. But the truth is, we ought to be saying less of that is ours and others, other of it's to be given to God. So set your salary. What do you need to live on? What do you need to depend on for your finances? Set that number in place. And then determine with the rest, the remainder that's left over. Or maybe we ought to start by saying the first fruits is the first fruits, right? Maybe we start by saying the first 10% is going to go to him or whatever it is your challenge is going to be. But, but try to set yourself a salary so you understand what is going to be open to bless others with, to be generous with. So that's the first conversation. The second thing I want you to discuss is, take, is how are you going to take the next step in your giving? Okay, we're in all different places when it comes to this. Some of you have never given, uh, uh, don't have anything that you've given in the plate here. Maybe you're not being generous other places. I want to challenge you to think about taking the first steps when it comes to that. I'm not asking you to jump all the way to 10% of your income. Let's, let's take steps here. Let's decide we're going to be generous in whatever way you want to do that. Others of you have been giving on uh, you know, a semi-regular basis. Maybe when a great need comes up or the mission's offering or, or some big need comes up, you're able to give to that. I want to challenge you to think about a regular percentage that you're willing to think about giving. Maybe you don't start with 10. Maybe you start with 2 or 3%. But you decide over the years that we're going to try to grow this percentage and make this closer to what uh, would be a, a generous contribution of our lives. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to give. What I'm trying to say is that it's much easier to live on 90% or 50% or 10% of what income we have inside the will of God than it is to live with 100% outside of his will. Others of you are giving already, and maybe you've never made that commitment to bump up to 10% this year. We're in. We're going to try this tithe and see what God does. This is not some formula we manipulate God by where we give this amount and he promises us financial blessings. There, if you want to go to a church like that, there are plenty that will teach that. That's not our teaching here, okay? This is not about you do this and God has to do this in return. God, but, but what I found over and over again is that God does bless his people when we are generous. Whether that's financially or whether that's through spiritual blessings or things we never imagined. Many of you have stories you can tell this morning coming up on stage and talking about a time where you went over and above and God did something to show up. Sometimes we don't see miracles because we don't need them. 
And it's amazing when I hear about third, stories from third world countries or people who are in poverty who give above their means, don't know how they're going to you know, be able to get things done through the month, and God shows up when it's needed most. What would it look like for us to put ourselves in a place where God could show up in a miraculous way? Others of you have made a commitment and know the blessing of giving. You've been given at a high rate. Maybe you need to think about the next steps for you. That's, that's what many of us are going to be challenged to do. So I want you to think about those two things this week. Set your salary. Figure out what you're going to live on and what the rest will be given away. Figure out where you're going to give that to. And then take the next step in your giving uh, in 2015. I've been, I've been blessed to share this with you. I thank you for your patience through this series because I know this can be a, a challenging topic. But ultimately, at the end of all this, there's no big ask that we're, we're making. Now, there's going to come a time where we believe God's calling for Greenville Oaks to do something big that's going to take more finances. And I'm not here to just issue a call. I'm just here to say, when we discern that moment, I'm not going to be ashamed to come to you because I know those of you who are very generous and would look forward to a time to partner with God in some way. That day will come. But this is not about any of that. This is not about a challenge for budget. This is not about anything. It's just, this is about what we want for you, not about what we want from you. When Jesus talked about this, he wasn't talking about trying to get money. He never challenged people to to get more money for him. He was trying to keep people's things from getting them. And this is where we get things backward in our lives. We're worried about what people are trying to take from us, forgetting that sometimes a loose grip on our possessions frees us more than we could have ever imagined. Many churches will just kind of talk about this when it comes time for the big give. But what the world needs more than anything else is to see churches that are generous and Christians that are generous on a regular, everyday basis. I was at lunch this week with a guy from this church that was talking about a time when, when he gave to someone in line behind him. And when I heard that, and I heard that story, I thought, you know, I need to do the same thing. I was at Starbucks later in the day, and, and I, just, I just gave a $20 bill to the cashier and said, you know, bless whoever comes behind me. And I can't tell you the blessing that gave to me to just get to see people come through line and just kind of shocked by that fact. It's, it's something they never expected. What would it look like this week for you to surprise someone with a blessing financially that they didn't ask for, they didn't know where it came from? See, you're not meant to consume. You aren't that person. You were made in the image of a God, and that God is a generous God. So we are most fully human. We are generous people as well. So may we give generously, and may our eyes be good. Let's pray together as we close this series.